the skills that it takes to get wealthy and the skills that it takes to stay wealthy are often different. So you probably shouldn't, when you said your best thinking got you here, let's keep doing it. Like, yeah, it might work. Like you might end up incredibly wealthy, like that happens. But you know, one of the, one of my favorite investment quotes from Buffett is, uh, don't risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. So like set yourself up with some base level of financial security, a reliable portfolio that's diversified, that makes sense, that's structured to outperform, that's built by a professional who knows what they're doing. And once you have that, have at it, like go ahead, like buy that property or in, do that angel investment or, but don't risk what you have and need to set your life up for something that you don't necessarily need. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. What if you could hang out with experienced tech industry executives, ask them about career growth, equity compensation, investing, financial strategies, and more. Then take an insight or two to guide your own career and lifestyle. Each week on the show, Christopher Nelson shares an in-depth look at how to navigate tech careers and hyper-growth companies, select the right companies to work for, earn equity, and build a passive income portfolio. Christopher is an author, tech exec, and principal and co-founder of Wealthward Capital. His goal is to give you the information you need to grow your career, build wealth, and make an impact. Now, here's Christopher. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. My name is Christopher Nelson. I am your host. I've been in the tech industry for 20 plus years. And after climbing my way to the C-suite, working for three companies that have been through IPO and investing my way to financial independence, I'm here to share with you everything that I've learned and introduce you to people along the way that can help you on your journey. Today, I want to introduce you to John Morrison. John Morrison is the head of portfolio management at SecFi. SecFi is a company that helps technology employees plan out their equity compensation and helps them finance stock options as well as wealth management. Now, for people that know me, you know, wealth managers and myself have not always got along because I haven't really understood the value. But one of the things that I try to show people is what good looks like. What does it look like to meet people who are experts in their industry? John and I have had a couple conversations offline before we've had this because I really wanted to understand who he was, what kind of wealth advisor he was, and I'm excited to introduce you to him today because I think he's going to open your mind and help you understand what does great look like. So John and I today are going to spend the first half of the show we're going to really talk about his origin story. I really want to hear a lot about that. The other thing I want to dig into is his strategy around portfolio management, you know, and, and getting to know him, I understand some of these things. And I really want to spend some time with you today, digging in, asking the hard questions. So stick around because I am going to be asking him questions around what are the value that wealth managers can really bring to the table to technology employees when a lot of these things we can buy off the shelf today. And I think that you're going to be very interested in what you hear. So stick around for that. I'm excited to introduce you to John. Let's meet him right now. All right, welcome. I'm excited to introduce everybody today to John Morrison. 
John Mortison is the head of portfolio management at SecFi. SecFi is a company that helps technology employees just like us with equity planning, stock option financing, and now wealth management. This is a practice that John is starting there, and he's come from seven years working at investment strategy, helping um, large institutions invest at dimensional fund advisors. And so we're excited to introduce everybody today to John Morrison. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks for coming on, John. I think that for technology employees today who are getting equity compensation and are coming from no knowledge to some knowledge, this is so complex. And I think being able to spend some time and ask you some questions, I'm excited to get into that. But before that, I love to understand people's origin stories. So how did you actually get to this moment where you were uh, building out this wealth management function for SecFi? Where did it start for you? Sure, so I've always been kind of a science nerd. So, you know, growing up, I won the science fair at my high school. I took all the science courses. My undergrad was in neuroscience. And really that was all about like trying to understand the world, frankly. and that's, you know, what drives me and my curiosity. But I took an economics course as part of my undergrad, and it just came so naturally to me and gave me another perspective on, you know, how to understand why the world is the way it is and why do people behave the way they behave. And so I just sort of fell in love with economic and finance and markets. And then layering on top of that, my childhood, you know, I grew up in a household that wasn't super well off. Things were volatile. And that was stressful. And so when I started to understand economics and understand money, I sort of became obsessed with how to optimize those decisions around money to avoid sort of the situation that I grew up in and kind of change my future. And, and now I hope to continue to help people to change their futures as well. So um, yeah, I, I'm, you know, there's my, a common thread there that I understand that, and I think it goes either two ways. Like there was a lot of economic uncertainty. And so people really pursue personal finance to be able to find stability, or it could be the scenario of, you know, I, I like myself where, you know, we weren't thinking about what happened in the next meal and not that we, you know, had a, a lot, but we had enough, but it was more of, I wanted to know more of how the system worked and how it worked, like how did money flow? And so it sounds like this drive, you have this science degree coming out of undergrad. Where did that sort of take you for your next step? Yeah. So uh, my first job out of undergrad was in credit risk and it was 2008. So oh. the summer of 08, um, I joined Goldman Sachs in their risk management group right before the financial crisis really kicked off with the failure of Lehman Brothers and all the other institutions that were in big trouble at that time. So, you know, it wasn't a great time to be looking for employment in 2008, but, you know, where I landed was probably the only place where people were getting jobs at the time right. in risk, right? And so I was coming from the science background, but I received quite the crash course in finance, economics, banking, capital markets, and risk. Um, and, you know, that early career job where the emphasis was on sort of what could happen and what was likely to happen and how to protect yourself from the downside was really influential to how I view the world and invest to this day. So, 
you know, one of the things I think about is how do you define risk? And there's lots of different ways to define risk. Risk right. to one person might be different from risk to another person. But one of the ways to think about it is more things can happen than will happen. And that's risk. Right. So positioning yourself for the most likely outcome while understanding the full range of possibilities is really what investing is all about. And, you know, my scientific background and sort of affinity for science and empirical thinking lead me to a very probabilistic view of the world and an empirical approach to managing people's money and to how to think about, you know, doing the right thing ex ante, given all the information that we have and sticking to that right. for the long run, because the noise will wash out eventually. So I do want to go back. So 2008 Goldman Sachs, you, you walk in there. I mean, I have to expect that there was a lot of angst. There was a lot of uh, nervousness in that environment at the same time for yourself coming in out of school, your first job digging in, walk us through like, what was that experience like? Because that had to be on the job NBA. Like you probably got enough from, and you were there for two years, three years. I stuck around at Goldman for four years. So uh, okay. the next step in my career was going to business school at UChicago. So from 08 but, uh, to 2012, like right in the heart of this, you're doing risk management at Goldman Sachs, looking at what you would, would you say that you saw a lot of the worst case scenarios play out? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. We definitely saw a lot of worst case scenarios and a lot of things that people didn't think were possible, right? Like right. that's one thing, you know, Things that have never happened happen all the time. Right. Like you, you got to be ready and understand what's possible so you can make the right decision to protect yourself and to benefit too. Like the it goes both ways. Both you know things that have never happened that are negative happen all the time, and things that right. have never happened that are positive also happen all the time. So you, know, you really got to understand the full breadth. But yeah, the the four years at Goldman kicking off my career really wasn't an eye-opening experience. You know, I didn't come from uh, the backgrounds that a lot of other folks that go to Goldman come from. Right. People were asking me, you know, you know, I grew up in the Seattle area. I remember one experience um, early on when someone asked me, they found out where I was from and they asked me, so do you sail? I was like, sail? <laughs> like, what? No. No, I don't sail. My family didn't have a sailboat. What are you, crazy? Um, so that was sort of the wor world I was stepping into and, right. um, you know, both, both like socially it was different and then, you know, everything that was going on in the economy was obviously, um, intense and I learned a lot. Uh, one of the things that I found quickly was that, you know, I was going to need to be able to prove myself right. like an undergrad degree in an unrelated field. Well, sounds impressive. Like it's not going to cut it. Like you need to actually, you know, then dive into the field that you're working in and really prove yourself. So I did the CFA program like right away. Uh, CFA is Chartered Financial Analyst. It's a two to three year self-study exam, taking three different exams that are very rigorous, very difficult to pass. And that was, you know, the way that I gave myself a credential the right. way that I gave myself some credibility of mm. some minimum understanding of what, what, uh, what's important 
know, the CFA isn't a, you know, it's not a guarantee of success, but it right. is a signal that you have some minimum understanding and some ability to be disciplined and interest in the field. So, uh, you know, that was one of the first things I did. Yeah. I talk about that with people all the time is if you're in a space and it's new for you, getting education and education doesn't have to be, oh, I'm going to a, you know, four-year university or master's program. You can go get very reputable certificates. Basically they're saying, okay, I have studying and I understand sort of, you know, what fits into this bubble on the Venn diagram, at least what's known today so that then I can be conversant. I can actually, you know, execute a few things. And it sounds like that CFA and then this on the ground sort of risk management started then putting inside you this focus that said, okay, now I understand a lot more. Now you leave at the end of four years with all this knowledge, the CFA, what was the impetus that said, I'm ready to go to grad school? Um, again, just sort of a lot of my, uh, responsibility was to manage the risk associated with Goldman's investment fund clients. So okay. talking hedge funds, talking private funds, talking mutual funds, like any sort of investment fund client of Goldman Sachs that we had a trading relationship with or lending relationship with. Uh, part of my responsibility was to evaluate those firms and come up with, you know, what was reasonable from a risk taking perspective from Goldman's perspective. And, uh, you know, I had to do due diligence, right. With all these mm -hmm. fund managers. Um, and one of the thing, one of the common threads was a lot of prestigious graduate degrees. So it was really eye-opening to, you know, be on the sell side, as they call it, at the, at the investment bank and talk to the buy side, which are the people actually allocating money for clients and see, um, you know, the difference there. And mm. like a lot of people on the sell side, the buy side looked really appealing from a career standpoint, from an interest standpoint, it's just more interesting to allocate capital. And, uh, you know, one of the common threads was a lot of prestigious grad schools. So <laughs> I wanted to do that too. So I, I made it a goal to get into, you know, a top MBA program and, um, Chicago was on my short list. And after visiting a bunch of schools, it was the one for me. Um, it's like the most has a reputation for being very quantitative, has a reputation for being sort of like the nerdy empirical <laughs> business school, right. uh, contrasted with sort of the other side of the coin where people have a perception of MBAs as being kind of like superficial and socially driven. You Chicago's kind of the exact opposite, which fits me perfectly. Right. Where I, I mean, I was speaking to somebody recently where they talked about an MBA was the education gave them some push forward, but it was really about the network. Like it was really more about okay, who's there, who's doing what then in the future versus this sounds like the, the education, the rigor that you got out of it was, had much more weight to it than let's say that social aspect. Yeah, I would say so for me, at least personally, not that the network is unvaluable. Of course it is, sure. but, uh, but I really dove into like the academic side of it. And, um, I was, you know, very interested in digging deeper into the science of finance and investing. Mm. Uh, and you know, there's lots of different approaches to investing. So, you know, the traditional approach kind of bottom up stock picking, know the companies really well, uh, you know, forecast what's going to happen, get really smart on 
you know, channel checks and building models and getting really detailed there. I did that sort of at Goldman. That was, you know, that style of sort of analysis was in my job at Goldman. But then, you know, I, I got an internship sort of doing that style of investing. And, you know, as I was exposed to the academic research on this stuff and dove really deep into the real evidence about how to invest, I, it just wasn't for me. It's not that you can't do that. Right. Uh, and be successful at it. It's just not the approach that I take. I just couldn't stand not knowing if I was lucky or good. <laughs> right, like, <laughs> right, right, right. You want the data. Because the statistics are such that like you can get lucky and be lucky for a decade and think you're good, but not really be good. <laughs> and vice versa. Well, so y- you can get a bad draw and, and uh, be unlucky. Um, and, you know, none of that was very satisfying to me. So I wanted something that was a little bit more robust, evidence-based and like mm-hmm. empirical. So, you know, that was like my quantitative shift in my mindset was like, let's look at this from a more systematic research perspective rather than individual stock picking. And it sounds like, I mean, this is that, you know, trying to that pursuit of, you know, data, understanding fundamentally what what happens. I mean, again, this goes back into that mindset of where it's like, I want to try and understand how things work to try and find, to reduce as much risk as possible and try and find stability, right? I mean, that's, that's part of this whole, you know, John Morrison origin story. Totally. You're exactly right. It's like, uh, how do you make the best decision? Uh, mm. given an uncertain world and wow. really, you know, and you think about, you know, I have a probabilistic view of things. So, you know, in math, the first moment, uh, as they call it is the mean or the average or the expected value of a probability distribution. And that's important because the average is what you should expect, right? Like that is the sort of baseline, but you can't really make decisions just based on averages. You also have to understand the second moment, as they call it in math, which is sort of the range of outcomes uh, that are possible. And that's what I've been talking about is sort of risk. And then, you know, there's third and fourth moments, which are about skewness and kurtosis, uh, you know, statistical terms. But the, but the main point I'm trying to make is like, you've got to understand the whole sort of distribution Right. to really make good decisions. And what I find is a lot of people don't even understand what the averages are. <laughs> so like, <laughs> not only is it, you know, they're not thinking about the additional things like the variance or the range of outcomes, but they're also not even clear on what is to be expected or what is the average right. range. So, so I think it's just really important to understand deeply, like what it looks like to be an investor in stocks versus bonds versus a portfolio versus a portfolio mix of stocks, bonds, private real estate, private equity, venture capital. Like you really got to have a deep understanding of how it worked with all the other things in, in your portfolio and going on in your life in order to build a portfolio that's robust. Right. Um, they can weather any type of economic conditions. I mean, it truly is understanding all of those those pieces. And then how do you as an individual, you know, manage that right with, with partners, with the right partners in the right areas. And so I'm excited to get to that. Let's, let's move on the, on this story in the sense that you got through booth, 
and then you, I think you did consulting for a little bit. Yeah. So I decided not to go down the, you know, the stock picking traditional investment route. I had an offer. It was great money. It was really attractive, but you know, I just, I just sort of had that existential, like, Hey, do I really believe this is the right way to do it? And, and it wasn't, I, I couldn't answer that question affirmatively. So I did what a lot of people do when they don't know what they want to do, which is consult. <laughs> right. So, uh, <laughs> I became a consultant and, and consulting is, you know, great in a lot of ways because you get exposure yeah. to a lot of different industries and you see a whole bunch of different companies. I did it for a brief period of time. I was there for just over a year. Um, I learned pretty quickly that that was not like the long term for me. I really determined like, Hey, I want to be a quantitative investor. Like, um, and so I took that year while I was a consultant, I learned a lot, but, uh, I was also, you know, trying to break into the quant investment industry. And then I did. Uh, so that's how I wound up at dimensional, which uh, where I was prior to joining SecFi, I stayed there for seven years. And for those that don't know, Dimensional Fund Advisors, it's a pretty big firm, but it's not very well known among the public because they don't really advertise. So a lot of their funds have been exclusive and only accessible through through approved advisors and, right. and uh, institutions. Uh, but Dimensional, it was founded by David Booth, who's the namesake of the Chicago Booth School of Business. They're kind of the original quants. Um, started in the early 80s. They've got deep roots in the University of Chicago. Multiple Nobel Prize winners have been involved in the firm or are mm. still involved in the firm. Uh, dozens of PhDs on staff. Really just an interesting place to work. An investment approach that really resonates with me mm. as a what? sort of empirical kind of guy. How many size of asset under management? I think currently it's about 650 billion, give or take. Yeah. So significant, you know, it's not BlackRock, but it's a, a large firm. It's yeah, it's a large firm. It has some weight. And so you're, you're there, you're spending time and this is where you're placing, you know, millions, if not billions of dollars and managing very large portfolios over your career there. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, and it was wonderful. You know, I progressed in my career. I was, uh, associate portfolio manager when I joined. I was a vice president and senior investment strategist. So, you know, I was promoted and moved up in my career, but it was a big company and it still felt like I was a cog in a wheel. And mm. I've always wanted to do something more entrepreneurial with my life. I've always wanted to sort of take that risk at some point. Um, I wanted to build something uh, and, you know, I always feel motivated when I build stuff, whether it's a bench <laughs> for the backyard to sit around the fire pit or, or it's, you know, a company. So one thing that sort of bug wasn't, was a motivator, but one thing that you point out all the time, I think in your podcast is you kind of have to be an owner yeah. to achieve economic independence in this world. Like working a W2 job probably isn't going to cut it. Not that it can't, but right. like you need more than that. Frankly, you need to save and invest and have a W2 job at least sometimes to make it to a place where you're financially secure and independent and have the freedom to, to do things that you want to do. So it's true. And this, and this is where I try to encourage everyone. And this is again, why companies like SecFi that help 
technology employees, employees that have equity compensation understand it is so important as, as we're starting to get more educated on the value and how it all works. But being a W-2 employee and also a part owner in the company will compound your career compensation. And I'm working on some models now, you know, we're sharing this, you know, in the podcast live, I'm going to have you look these things over. But as I compare, you know, uh, salaries of people who started, let's say with Microsoft, and then they got that equity compensation, you know, I've done some historical research on that over time. And then you take away that equity compensation, even for low risk, low reward working for public companies, I'm finding that people are making in 30 years what normally would take you 50 years to make. You know, that's impactful. And guess what? You're again, time value of money. You're getting the money up front. You're also getting it where you're also getting a salary and bonus so you can invest all that. You know, that's really, really powerful. Totally. And to be clear, it is a risk. Like you're concentrating in the stock of a company in some way, which has a lot of risk associated with it. But at least in this situation, you have some control like 100 part part of it depends on you which is you know a better risk to take than just one where you're you know putting money on black at the roulette wheel and hoping you get right and actually actually my my model is 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 dictating that you you're actually taking the dollars off the table every year so you're liquidating you're not concentrating Yeah. yeah but what you bring up though i think is very important and this is where People fantasize over being the the founder of a company or a CEO of the company. Their options for liquidity aren't the same as those of us who were, you know, like myself, the director, senior director, VP, right, CIO. Like I am not the founder. I, I have different expectations on me. So if I'm regularly taking things off the table, nobody cares. I can deconcentrate. My right. Position. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Then let's get to the point, because I think you touched on it a bit, but you are now, you made the decision, you have this entrepreneurial spirit. I think there's, you know, we just talked about, I think there's an opportunity to get some skin into the game. You can be a part owner. You decided to make the move and go build out a wealth management function that is less going to institutions, but is now going to individuals. Yeah. And that's SecFi Wealth. So SecFi as a company, we've been around for six-ish years, I think, uh, founded in 2017. And the original product and idea was a financing solution for people to exercise their options. You know, sometimes the costs are prohibitive, especially if you've waited and there's a big tax bill associated with it. So SecFi stepped into the market to try to solve this problem because exercising early, even with the cost of financing, when you've got a company and you work at a company that's going to go public, man, the impact is can be hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars right. uh, in yeah. net take home if you exercise earlier rather than later, given the differences in tax rates for long-term and short-term gains and whatnot. So that was the problem that SecFi originally set out to solve. And we've been the category leader in that kind of niche business of financing employee um, exercises. But in that journey, you know, SecFi found that a lot of people were asking what they should do with this money (laughs) and asking, you know, for advice on should they exercise or how much should they exercise? And so it it was a natural extension to expand into advice and wealth management, given, 
you know, where we were and who we were talking to and the questions we were getting. So um, SecFi hired a lead advisor um, who's one of my business partners here at SecFi. Um, and then they hired me and then we kicked off SecFi Wealth Management at the end of September last year. So um, we've been officially launched for coming up on a year now. Uh, and it's been just a really fun journey. Um, I really enjoy like directly connecting with individuals to help them with their finances. It's, it's really fun. So what are the principles that are driving wealth management at SecFi? I'll say you know, clients first. There's a saying I like, which is, you know, we do the right thing the right way right now. And if we do that, I just think that we're going to succeed. Like wealth management is a business where it, it's highly trust-based. Like you hire a wealth manager because you don't want to think about this stuff and you don't have the expertise and you believe that they do. But how do you even evaluate if they do if you don't have the expertise in the first place? Like it's pretty hard, right? So like there is some level of trust that needs to come into it. And in my opinion, if we do right by our clients, uh, you know, that word of mouth of like, hey, these guys really do know what they're doing. Um, and you can trust them is going to spread and we're going to be successful in that way. So I always put the client first in, in sort of how we think about building our business, serve the client. Well, and this is where I want to, I want to double click into this for a second because the wealth management business are frustrating. They're frustrating because I think that you can trust people you can learn to trust people, but you can find out that you're trusting people that don't know what they're doing, right? <laughs> yes. No, and, and this is the conversation I want to take a minute and have because I had had some very bad experiences right after my IPO with some wealth managers that I felt were just trying to earn my trust. But at that point, because I had been doing a lot of my own stock investing for 10 or 11 years preceding, they knew less than I did and I was unimpressed with the result. And I came when John and I met for coffee because I was like, can we even have this interview? Like, who is this guy? And one of the things that's so, so important to me for technology employees that I'm trying to educate is I want to show them what good looks like. I want to show them what that looks like. And the thing that I've always come to understand a lot is that when there are professionals that operate at an institutional level. They're moving and they're getting the trust of companies and they're moving millions and billions of dollars. And then they feel a drive to go help individuals and they go from B to B to B to C. You're dealing with something that's completely different. And this is why I like taking time and walking through people's stories because it became apparent to me you know, that I'm talking to somebody completely different. And John and I have had a, a couple of conversations since then. We had a stop and a start trying to do this live in a studio. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but I'm spending time and I'm articulating this because like you're different, John, like you're different. And I think one of the things that it's not just trust, there is a level of competency in understanding things and I think your story is so profound because it's driven out of 
a kid who's like, I'm in this financially strange circumstance. I have this love of math, this love of learning. And now you've gone this full circle to go to these heights to say, I now want to serve people with this superpower that I've developed. I mean, that's high praise. I thank you for that compliment. That's awesome. Um, I mean, the financial advice and financial advisory and wealth management industry, it's super fragmented. There are thousands of firms. And, you know, at DFA, one of my, at Dimensional, one of my main responsibilities was to help financial advisors build portfolios for their clients. Right. And I've met with hundreds of advisors. uh, And there's a lot of really wonderful advisors out there, but there are also a lot that leave something to be desired. Unfortunately, you know, the barrier to entry in this business is fairly low. And there's a lot of quote unquote advisors out there that really have no business holding themselves out as experts. So, you know, as I was seeing that play out and seeing that fact in the industry, you know, I was like, well, if these guys can do it, I should be able to do it much better. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's part of why I decided to, to pursue this was because it feels like there's a big gap, frankly, in, um, in what kind of access to expertise regular individuals have. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, the, it starts with expertise and to be clear, wealth management is not just about investing. It's also about tax planning, yes. you know, estate planning, structuring your financial life. Mm-hmm. And we've got expertise in all those areas. So we're serving a niche of people with startup stock options. That's a pretty complex niche that a lot of advisors and CPAs, frankly, just don't have. So that expertise is a differentiator. And then you get additional institutional level expertise at the investment level. And I think that's a winning combination. And that's to me is the value that you can really add to the tech employees in, in our community, quite frankly, because we need the expertise around the stock options and the planning, period. It's complicated, mm-hmm. it's complex, and being able to sit down with strategists that can help us think you know, a few years ahead is critical. I also think on the investment side, so many people that I talk to are just frustrated with what I call this fast food wealth management that's fed to us by some of these larger shops. And so I think that, you know, I want to encourage people, you know, (laughs) flying off the cuff here, but I think you're fine with this, John, but call into John in their office as you meet, meet with them, ask them all the questions. Because the one thing that I've come to understand, and I'd be interested for you John, to tell me what are some some questions that you would ask to vet, you know, financial advisors, wealth advisors. But when I went into our first conversation, I said, I want to go deep down the rabbit hole and understand broad things, risk, alternatives. And we, I think, planned like a half an hour meeting and went for like an hour and a half and could have gone further. And I say this because you realize immediately when I know enough as somebody who I consider myself, you know, um, a professional only because I'm living off of my own income right now that I've created from my investment portfolio, but I've studied this a lot. And when you have somebody who is then teaching you in advancing that, I haven't found that a lot in the wealth management industry. And I know technology employees, 
love to get into the details, love to get into the math, love to answer this. So this is why, um, you know, I'm advocating for people to just have conversations, have communications and make their own decisions. Totally. I welcome it. Like we always try to lead with education, mm. you know, and the thing I sometimes promise people, like I can't promise where, I, I don't know where the market's going. Like I don't pretend to know, but I can promise that there is a reason for every decision we've made in your portfolio. And that reason is either based on returns and returns informed by evidence and yeah. empirical study, uh, risk is a risk reason or it's a cost reason. Those are the three reasons why we would make some decision in the portfolio. And I am happy to dive as deep as someone wants to go on any of those to justify why we've made a decision that we've made. And that's sort of the promise is that there is deep thought and expertise behind every little thing inside the portfolio. You know, I can't dive deep into every little aspect on, on this call, oh, but yeah. like I, maybe I can give a couple examples of well, like, Hold on, because we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, this is where we're going to get into the second half. And we're going to go the deep dive into portfolio management. And I want to spend the next half really asking as many good questions as we can to try and help people, again, get more visibility into where you live and play every day, John. We'll be right back. Awesome. All right. Okay, welcome back. We're here with John Morrison. We had a great first half of the show where we got to know John and what he's building at SecFi with the team there. And now we want to spend the second half and we want to double click into portfolio management and portfolio management with technology employees. My experience has been um, it can be challenging, right? There's challenges that face technology employees. And I really want you to help us understand what you see, but to tee it up, technology employees, many of us may understand a little bit about stock investing, may have a small portfolio of, you know, some stocks or some index funds, have something in our 401k. And then all of a sudden we go to work for a company and we start getting a volume of equity. We start getting some things before the company goes IPO, after the company goes IPO. And then we're so busy at work and trying to grow our career that we take these issues and we walk into John's office and what do you really see sitting across your desk for, for technology employees? What are some of the key challenges they have in their portfolios? I mean, the obvious and big one is that many of our clients typically have a very concentrated portion of their wealth tied up in a liquid private company stock mm. and they're waiting for an exit. And that, you know, usually it's a fast growing, high valuation, you know, not generating a lot of profits yet. You know, it's got to grow yes. into its valuation. Um, and, and that's a risk, you know, you, you've got a, a lot of our, a lot of our potential clients are coming to us with 80 plus percent of their net worth in their company that they work for. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, at least the earlier, uh, earlier employees or the, or the younger employees, um, and diversification can help manage that risk and smooth out that ride. 
And so when we build a portfolio, we're considering their exposure to mm. their private company. And we're building a portfolio that's complementary to that. We don't want to double up on the same risks that they're already taking. Yes. They can do that on their own. Like they've got plenty of exposure. They don't hire us to like do the things to speculate for them. They hire us to increase their expected returns, lower their risk and, and help them save money. Like that's what we're here for. Um, and so we build portfolios that are consciously diversifying that risk without giving up expected returns. Yeah. So that's the main thing about the portfolio management side of our clients that is unique. And the other thing that happens is, you know, when that windfall occurs, uh, the company goes public, they get acquired. Um, now you got to decide what to do with that chunk of money. Right. Uh, one, you know, if it goes public, how do you sell it down? Yeah. You don't want to go press one button to liquidate $10 million worth of stock. I promise you, you'll get a bad price uh, on, <laughs> on at least a portion of it. Sure. So you got to trade it intelligently because once you're talking about these big numbers, even, you know, 0.1% is a lot of money. Yeah. So you got to be smart about it. So how do you sell it down? There are trading strategies to make sure that you're not going to get run over by the professionals who are out there cherry picking you. Right. I want to pause right there yeah. for a second, because that was one of the most frustrating things for me is that when I was, you know, charged by the fast food wealth managers is the, the thing they planted in my head that I had to just realize like I knew better than them, which was there is a, I had learned early in my investing career, the concept of, you know, dollar cost averaging when you buy stock, right? You just want to average that. I also then became aware that executives VP and above, they had sort of access to these different plans. I can't remember the number, the name of it. 10B5 plans. 10B1 the 10B5 plans. plan where yeah. they can actually then dollar cost average out of a stock. So I actually learned a couple of things. Number one is I learned that um, with our particular stock agreement is I had it reviewed by a lawyer that I could actually set up my own automatic divesting if it was managed by Schwab, a third party company. And I provided evidence to our stock team. And so I realized I could do the same thing. I just had to do a little bit more work, number one. And number two is I had to educate myself that, oh, this is a viable strategy that nobody is talking about. Because you're right, the fast food wealth managers are going to come in and say, okay, sell half of it immediately, give it to us, and then we'll figure out what to do with the rest later. But when I looked at the tax bill, that was the thing too that made me want to yeah, yeah, bomb yeah. it a little bit. <laughs> Because Certainly, there was no tax yeah. planning that went with that, right? Which I know is really key to this whole plan too. Yeah, I think, you know, there's some things you can do to mitigate that tax bill in the year when you have a liquidity event. One potential way to help soften that blow is to spread it out like you're talking about. So sell, yeah. especially maybe your company goes IPO in like September or let's say IPOs in the summer, you have a six month lockup. Well, sell some in December when your lockup expires, but then spread it out into the next tax year too. So you can, you can mitigate the blow a little bit. Also, 
you can aggressively tax loss once you have a decently sized portfolio right you the opportunities for like customizing and creating strategies that are more custom to you customizing right uh, just grow exponentially so one one use case or one situation is you know rather than owning funds you can set up a tax managed account that owns securities directly and mm. in the year where you have your liquidity event you aggressively tax loss harvest in that account mm. to offset the gain on your recent ipo stock and then once you're through that year then you ratchet it back down to you know normal tax sensitivity or something like that mm. so there's a lot of tools that you can use to kind of mitigate the blow. And it's really about talking to someone, explaining the different strategies and the trade-offs and making an informed recommendation uh, so that right. they can then say, yeah, that is actually a really good strategy. That's what I want. So keeping on the topic of diversification, because I think I have found that many technology employees struggle with diversification and I, I think that it boils down to two main reasons. I'd be curious to see what you see or what you've observed as well. Number one is their best thinking has got them to this point where they have now all of a sudden come from nothing. They have this big wealth equity and they're like, my best thinking got me here. I should not rock this boat. Like that's, I believe that's flawed logic, but I believe that's their logic. I believe the second thing is they don't know who to trust and or they don't know what to then do with the money. So then it goes back to, well, my best thinking got me here. I'm just going to leave it here. But I think you rattled, I mean, because you know so much about the market and how it operates. You rattled off a stat that said, what is it, three years after an IPO, there's usually then a considerable drop in the value of the stock? Yeah, the data is clear. Like most IPOs have a pop on the first day. Uh, everyone sort of expects that because that's right. been the average experience in the past. Empirically, that number is 19%. A lot of, lot of volatility around it, but the average first day pop of a recent IPO, newly IPO'd uh, stock is 19% on that first day. Right. But once you look at the buy and hold returns thereafter, they're pretty terrible, frankly. Mm. More than half of IPOs underperform the market over the next three years. You lose money on more than half of them. And you know this is the same phenomenon that venture capitalists are very aware of and you hear them talk about like, they expect to lose money on nine out of 10 investments and then there's one that carries the portfolio. Right. That phenomenon is still true in public markets. Like they're- oh, Interesting. The majority of stocks, individual stocks, underperform the overall market. Mm. And the reason is because there's a small number of stocks that just have stellar returns and carry the market. That's always true. You know, you hear this year people talking about the Magnificent Seven, you know, the big tech companies that are powering the market return this year. Right. It's not weird. That happens all the time. Uh, mm. That's sort of... You know, maybe it's a little bit more concentrated than usual this year, but it's not outside of the ordinary. There's always a small number of stocks that do really, really well and power the market. Now, of course, you would love to be able to pick those in advance, right. but come on, like, that's not realistic. Like, 
anyone who's selling that is, you know, in my opinion, selling you a bridge. (laughs) (laughs) I got a bridge, I got a bridge to sell you kind of thing. Um, so, you know, you touched on something that I think is important, the skills that it takes to get wealthy and the skills that it takes to stay wealthy are often different. Mm. So your best thinking got you here. Let's keep doing it. Right. Yeah. You might end up incredibly wealthy. Like that happens. But one of my favorite investment quotes from Buffett is, uh, don't risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. Mm. So set yourself up with some base level of financial security, a reliable portfolio that's diversified, that makes sense, that's structured to outperform, that's built by a professional who knows what they're doing. Right. And once you have that, have at it, like go ahead, like buy that property or do that angel investment or, Mm. but don't risk what you have and need to set your life up for something that you don't necessarily need. That's huge. And I think the other thing that you said that I think is really, really important is this mindset of, well, my best thinking got me here. Well, that's the build wealth. That's not the stay wealthy skill. Like that is a different skill set. And that is, you know, something that I've come to understand too, is that, you know, the journey to building and keeping that wealth after you've made it is a whole different exercise, completely different exercise and um, involves a whole new set of people, right? Bringing a nice team around you because as you mentioned before, investment is one aspect. There is estate planning, the tax planning. I mean, it's huge. Massive. So on the portfolio side, we're trying to add basis points. Like once you get to a sizable, you know, amount of financial capital, um, your returns are what power your portfolio prior to getting there. It's, you know, how much you save. Uh, but once you get there, it's like the calculus sort of shifts and it becomes like much more important to optimize and get like the best returns you can get given, you know, your risk tolerance and all that stuff. And knowing how to do that is requires a lot of expertise. So, you know, thankfully you can do some stuff on your own now, which is wonderful. But you can do better than indexing um, if you're thoughtful about it, if you're um, if you have the right people in your corner and you're paying a wealth manager, like the value is in both the investment side and all the planning and structuring that can, you know, save you tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's speak into that, because that was that was a good conversation that you and I had that, you know, and again, this is where. When I was marking that to market, when I stood across from these gentlemen back in 2012, you know, from an unnamed shop, I'll leave it unnamed. It was a fast, a big company. And they were telling me that it was going to be 2% for them to manage my portfolio in a way that I was already managing it today. That was really the question is, you know, if I'm doing some individual stocks, some mutual funds, et cetera, the value didn't seem to be there to me there didn't seem to be the value because I felt like I knew more than them. I was already doing it today. I'm basically paying somebody to do what I'm doing. Number one. And number two is they didn't tell me about everything else that I needed. I thought that their concept of liquidating it, give me a big tax bill didn't make sense to me. So 
and now you have robo advisors that are out there doing some stuff. You also have index investing. And, and this is why I really enjoy having conversations with you because you're fearless in the way that you answer them. And I have ultimate respect for that is, you know, how do you compete in this asset under management environment? And what are the values that you bring to the table to um, garner that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So it is a very competitive field. Uh, I think, you know, volatility is the defining characteristic of finance. So, uh, you know, I hinted at this earlier, but you can make a good decision and get a bad outcome. You can make a bad decision, get a good outcome, especially in the short run. Yes. Um, you know, luck plays a big role. So how do you tell if someone was good or lucky? Like that problem still persists, even though I'm using, you know, more reliable approaches than, you know, predicting the future. It, it, luck is always going to play a role. So in my opinion, when someone is evaluating, you know, is this thing worth it? Is the fee I'm paying to these guys, like, am I getting more value out of this than what I'm putting in? It's many fold. And sometimes the value is chunky. So there might be, uh, you know, one, another famous investing quote that I really like is like, um, it's years of boredom punctuated by uh, moments of sheer terror <laughs> sometimes. So, uh, so, you know, sometimes nothing is going on in your financial life and in your portfolio and it's steady state. But having someone in your corner who's an expert who knows what to do when something happens, like when you have a liquidity event, mm. when the market tanks, uh, you know, 20% in a couple of weeks, when these big stakes decisions have to be made in a short amount of time, mm. having an expert more than makes up their fee 99% of the time, but they got to be an expert. They got to really know yeah. and, and do the right thing. Um, and it, it is challenging to kind of like quantitatively prove it out. Like I could show, you know, expected returns and tracking error of our strategies relative to the market and show you like what I expect and compare it to the fee and say, you know, what we expect is greater than the fee that therefore you should hire us. All that is true, but it's uncertain over any given period of time. So you've really got to trust in the manager, in the wealth advisor, that what they're pursuing really is going to pan out like they like they are saying it will. Right. And then you also have to get value out of the structuring and planning side. Uh, quick story. One of our clients, salesperson at a tech company, private tech company, doing really well from an income standpoint and financial standpoint, um, but not a lot of liquid wealth right now because most of it's tied up in this private company. We looked at his tax returns and found 60 grand in tax savings for him. Wow. That that pays our fees for a long, long time. Like we've already generated more value than we're gonna mm. extract from him in fees uh, in like a few meetings. So right. you know, everyone is different, I guess is what I'm saying. So the value might be different for you than it is for someone else, but the fees you were getting charged 2%, man, that is a high hurdle to overcome. 
Well, I would have been. I mean, the thing is, the question that I ask at the end of that, because I felt like it was very high, as I said, well, so then you don't get paid if the market goes down. And they said, no. And I said, incentives aren't aligned. And I said that because I felt like they wanted to get my money and put it on cruise control. I've heard these stories since then too of people that have retired and their financial manager had everything like they put it in a dimensional fund and they just left it there and that was it and they kept were paying for for that and there was more uh no tax real planning or other things too and so this is where you know i think everyone's situation is different but when i think about technology employees and i think about the services that we need it is very complex. And I think that when you combine strategic stock planning and wealth management and tax planning, I think there is a lot of value to be delivered that can be done in a way that is, um, you know, managed through some, some fees and not, you know, pay as you go. Um, but I think it's important that value is read back. I'm, I'm, I think it's a clear, sure. it needs to be very clear that people understand where they're getting the value because otherwise I, I think, you know, my personal opinion is the market has been tainted by, by some of these big shops that, that I honestly think want to keep people middle-class. Yeah. I mean, the amount of value that uh, is extracted by frankly, charlatans in this industry is just absurd. Yeah. Um, you do have to pay for people's expertise. Like, yes. That is true. And, and you're not going to get away from that. But the one thing that's happening in this industry is there's a bit of fee pressure on wealth managers, just in aggregate, uh, because of things like robo advisors and because of things like people getting smarter about like, what is the value of this? There's a bit of fee pressure, but the fees haven't really declined that much, Mm. um, relative to history. But what has changed is the breadth of services that you get with a wealth manager has expanded a lot. Mm -hmm. So a wealth manager 30 years ago was just picking stocks for you. They weren't doing tax planning. They weren't doing financial planning. They weren't doing the structuring. Um, And now, uh, you know, you got to find one that is doing that, but that is becoming more of the norm. And that is what SecFi is. It's tax planning, it's structuring your financial life, it's saving strategies, it's all of these things, including investing. And it's a pretty reasonable fee when it when it comes down to it. Well, and that's the thing. I think it needs to be seen in the broader light, number one. And the other point, though, that you brought up that I think is really important is you need to understand expertise. You have to understand that. And I know that when one of the conversations that you and I mentioned before is having a wealth advisor, having a portfolio where somebody is looking at it and saying, how do we maximize even the BPS out of it? And I know, excuse me, you started going down a little bit where you talk about, okay, here's an index fund and people are looking at, you know, it's particular fee. They look at this and they think it's overweight, but actually some of these things can actually deliver more BPS. Oh yeah. So I mean, indexing is generally, I think it's one of the best financial innovations that have happened. Uh, It it allows just very inexpensive diversification, gives regular people a chance to own the market. Like it's, 
it's a wonderful thing in general. But there are some drawbacks. So, you know, one of the frameworks I think about when I think about how to select a fund or a strategy for a particular person or situation, like you have to understand the total cost of, of ownership of that investment vehicle or strategy. And there's a sticker price. Uh, that's what's known as the expense ratio. And expense ratios on index funds, rock bottom, generally. I mean, you can find expensive index funds. And if if you have an advisor and they've put you in one of those, you should fire them immediately. <laughs> but, uh, but most index funds are very, very inexpensive when you look at the sticker price. But what you're missing is a bunch of stuff that is not captured by that sticker price. So for example, there's, this, uh, there's a well-known phenomenon called the index rebalance effect. And the reason it exists is because an index is just a list of stocks in their proportional weights. And every fund that tracks that index has to trade in the exact quantities uh, at the exact time that the list changes, that the index changes. Right. And many of these indexes only rebalance, you know, once a quarter or even once a year. So while they may not trade much overall, all of the trading they do is on one day and not only on one day, but at one particular minute on one day. Wow. And everybody that is a professional managing money knows this. Like we would take advantage of this at dimensional. Like we knew when indexes were being rebalanced, what stocks were being dropped, what stocks were being added, wow. what is the likely aggregate demand or supply of stock at that time, and we would trade around it. So, you know, you see it in the empirical evidence too. There's tons of studies. Go look on SSRN and, and find a bunch of papers on how large the index rebalance effect is. It's, it's there. And that ain't in the expense ratio. That's just a lower return that you get because you wanted the certainty of tracking an index. Now, you know, not tracking the index, expense ratio is probably gonna be higher because it's a harder strategy to do. You don't just follow the, the, the index. Right. Uh, but, you know, then you have to think about, okay, rather than trading in that way, how are they trading? And does that make sense? And does that add value? And is the difference between the expense ratio worth it? And, uh, and and you can add value over an index, in an, over an index um, simply by, you know, not trading in a concentrated way, uh, in a telegraphed way. So right. there's one. Um, how large is it? Depends. You know, some asset classes have larger trading costs than others. Um, but, you know, estimates range from 0.1% to a full percentage point. It's not nothing. So, you know something to be conscious of and it's all trade-offs like right you get a lower sticker price but you have this invisible sort of drag on your returns mm. um from index rebalance effect is that worth it depends right it depends on your portfolio and that's where i think we can start yeah. taking the conversation is you know when you have a nice traditional portfolio you know what you mentioned before is you can start you know, exploring other holdings and, you know, I'm a, where do you think somebody needs to be with their portfolio when they start considering alternatives and questions that they would ask? 
Yeah. So alternatives can be great. So there's a lot of studies out there that show that like private equity, venture capital, especially, and even some private real estate has outperformed. And there are plausible explanations as to why that's the case. But it doesn't mean that you should just go full bore all alternatives, right? Like there's trade-offs, principally liquidity. So a lot of these funds you can't get out of. Uh, and even if you could, you have to get out at a substantial discount. Um, they're expensive. So the sticker price is high. Uh, oftentimes it's, you know, private equity sometimes is two and 20, 2% management fee, 20% performance fee. That's not nothing. That's a pretty high hurdle. Um, and then uh, on top of that is, you know, is it real diversification? And that's a, that's the question that I think sometimes gets overlooked because the way I think about diversification, just from first principles, is it giving you something you can't get elsewhere? So if, if it's just repackaging something you can get elsewhere, that's not true diversification. Mm. So just for instance, like if you run a, uh, a correlation, you know, simple correlation on the S and P 500 daily returns and the S and P 500 quarterly returns, they'll look uncorrelated. There will be a, you know, they're not perfectly correlated, even though they're literally the exact same thing. Mm. It's just the way the math works, it looks uncorrelated. So you really got to be careful uh, because there are a lot of people selling you diversification that isn't, you know, real diversification. Right. So, you know, alternatives can be a wonderful part of the portfolio. Start with what is the proportional representation of this asset class in the world market? That's your starting point. And then deviate from there based on expected returns, risk, your preferences, what you like, and that's how you go about it. How much money do you need? Yeah. I would say it really depends on you and your lifestyle, like what's going to secure your future. Personally, I wouldn't start looking at illiquid private opportunities until I had, you know, three, four million plus. Maybe then I allocate a little bit. And the reason is manyfold. One is the minimum ticket sizes to invest in these things are often pretty high. So while you might want exposure to the asset class, you can't really get it unless you have like a pretty big portfolio. But yeah, I think alts are great. Many of the largest investors in the world have a significant portion of their portfolio in alts. Uh, you know, the Yale endowment is one of the most famous for alternative investing and they have quite a large part of their portfolio and alternatives it can really be meaningful um, but it's not without its trade-offs and you just gotta right. understand them no that's good so what do you think about um the four percent rule right i mean i know that there's a lot of um you know when when people start thinking about getting to financial independence right the the, the clear message today is i think in a in a lot of um you know media is Okay, you need to build a portfolio and then you're going to be taking these 4% distributions annually and the market should outgrow that. Yeah. I mean, the 4% rule is just too simplistic to really rely on. The rule was really conceived of 
in a different world and for a different purpose. It's really not meant to be a perpetual withdrawal rate. Mm. Okay. It was designed with traditional retirees in mind. You know, it's not a bad place to start from, you know, how much can I draw on my portfolio and be financially secure, but it's not a slam dunk either. Um, the size of your portfolio matters, the, your goals and your time horizon matters. If you've got to live off your portfolio for 50 years, 4% is probably too aggressive. Uh, right. If you've got to live off your portfolio for 20 years, it might be appropriate. Um, it depends. Interest rates matter. The composition of your portfolio matters. If you have a more diversified portfolio, like you have more certainty of what the future is going to be than if you have a more concentrated portfolio. That means you might be able to increase your withdrawal rate. But if you've got more concentrated bets in your portfolio, you've got to account for the fact that those could go awry and therefore you you might need to have a lower withdrawal rate to compensate or, or to control for that potential risk. So, you know, ultimately there's there's always uncertainty in investing. So whatever the rate is for you, whatever the safe withdrawal rate is for you and your circumstances, you've also got to understand the things that can occur that might mean you need to adjust it up or down. Um, and so I don't like hard and fast, like it's always going to be 4%. Right. Uh, no, one, it depends. And two, it could change because the <laughs> world changes. So, you know, something that you always got to keep on top of. Um, I will say, though, that a lot of folks that we talk to are surprised by how little they need to secure their financial future. I think, I don't know, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I, I think part of that is sort of like the Instagram world that we live in, yeah. where people are always, you know, posting pictures of this imaginary life where they're on yachts and driving Bentleys and people think that that's what they need right. to be financially secure. And, and then it come, when it comes down to it and we talk about their values, they're like, yeah, I don't need any of that stuff. And we're like, well, if you don't need that stuff, then here's what you need. And they're like, that's it. <laughs> right. uh, so, so sometimes, you know, it's a pleasant surprise in that direction um, in terms of, how large the portfolio needs to be and what is the safe withdrawal rate for you. Yeah. And I, I think to just, you know, put a bow on this, on this section, right. Is, you know, technology employees, we have the great benefit of being able to work for equity. And I think when you find good partners, you understand how to vet them and you're getting the services that work with you, right. Tax planning, investment planning, and, and I think it is on us, you know, as the investors, as the people that are, are generating the income to really have a clear vision of what do we want our life to be like. And Percent. many people, they want the freedom and the time with their family more than they want the Ferrari. They want, mm -hmm. you know, I want to take a very modest trip let's say to Europe, not staying at five ho star hotels, but have a cross-cultural experience, you know, with my wife or with my family over the, you know, deluxe resort. And, and they, they, you know, and when we get honest with those things and we align that with the, the right professionals that we're working with, we can get there a lot sooner. That's to me is the exciting part of this. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm a big math nerd and, you know, science nerd. I love data, but 
the more the longer I'm in this industry and the longer I've invested, the more I realize how psychological a lot of this stuff is. Yeah. And how emotion plays such a big role in not only how you invest, but how you live. Yes. Um, and part of our role as advisors is to kind of be armchair psychologists sometimes and prevent people from making what might be devastating decisions right. uh, when they're being emotional and and also helping them envision like what is truly valuable to them? What do they care about? Uh, you'd be surprised how many people get to a place where they've had a windfall and they don't know what they care about. So they don't know what to do, right? Yeah. Like, so, so part of it is like helping people think through what's important to them and then building a plan to achieve that. So, you know, it is, it's different for every person, but uh, I, I guess my point is that the math matters, the numbers matter, but the emotion and the psychology and the, the intangible stuff about what do you want your life to be yes. plays a big role in the advice that you get from your advisor and your advisor can also help you understand what those things are, which, you know, is you can't really put a number on that. It's very true. Well, thank you so much, John. We are at the point where we're going to get to the fire round. I'm going to hit you with five questions that you can answer to just be able to help people with some, uh, some good tactics. So how sure. do you keep learning? I love learning. If, if I had my druthers, I would just be like a perpetual student at a university. <laughs> I, I think it's just so much fun. What I do, I listen to books on Audible. I listen to podcasts. I read books. I read the news. I read a lot. Um, like a lot of my job is reading, frankly, <laughs> reading and writing, uh, in addition to doing some math on the side. But uh, it's a lot of reading. Um, I, I can't under, I can't overstate how important it is to just be curious and, mm. and read. Um, you got to be careful about the sources. So make yes. sure that you're reading stuff that is, you know, reliable and written by experts and all that. Uh, but, uh, I think that's one of the biggest. And the second thing is have a diverse group of people around you. Yeah. So mm. My wife is an artist. She paints. This is her painting here. That's one of her. Wow. Uh, and so I have a pretty diverse group of friends that are, you know, quantitative finance nerds and then a bunch of artists and creative people too. Mm. And that's awesome. Like I love to get to know people that are different from me. And those are some of the most enriching relationships. Like you just grow so much more as a person when you hang out with people that are different from you rather than people that are virtual clones of you. So <laughs> definitely say those uh, two things, R read a lot and get to know people that are. And different. Yeah. And have a diverse group of people around you, diverse way of yeah. thinking and stuff. What do you do to recharge? Um, so this might come as a bit of a surprise, but I grew up skateboarding. Uh, I still do it to this day. I'm, I'm pushing 40 years old, so I don't try to do anything crazy, but, uh, I still love sort of the feeling of freedom and mm. creativity that it gives me. So I like to skate. Um, I have a half pipe in my backyard. Uh, <laughs> I go to the skate park. Uh, you know, it's another way that I get exposed to a lot of different culture, a different culture and attitude than the one that I get 
you know, in my professional day to day, which is nice too. So I like to skateboard. That's great. Uh, what would the advice that you would give your younger self for working in technology? Earlier. So, you know, I waited a while. I've been pretty risk averse in my career. Like I've worked yeah. for these gigantic institutions pretty much nearly my whole career until I came to SecFi. Probably informed by like my upbringing of, you know, a bit of financial volatility. But the upside to creating something new and successful is so big. I mean, I would have told myself to to go work in tech and try to build something earlier in my career. No, that's great. Yeah, working for equity. I mean, it's it's definitely yeah. it's a game changer. Uh, totally. What soft skill has helped your career the most? I'd say empathy. Mm. I think you gotta try to see things from other people's perspective. You know, I think everyone is sort of a hero in their own story. Like, I don't believe that there are many like intentionally malicious actors out there. I think most people are trying to do what they think is right most of the time. Right. And so I try to give people the benefit of the doubt and don't jump to conclusion don't jump to conclusions. So just have some empathy, try to see it from their perspective and give people the benefit of the doubt. There is a risk here. You know, you might get taken advantage of by a malicious actor who is intentionally malicious. That's possible. But overall, I think that risk is worth it. Gives you just such a better view of humanity. (laughs) If you, if you think the best of people, I think it's just worth it. So have some empathy. And this one, I'm excited to hear you answer this is, uh, what's the worst money or investing advice you ever received? Okay. This one is fun. It's a quote that sticks with me to this day. It's not risky. If you know what you're doing, uh, that's not true at all. So (laughs) you cannot remove risk. Like risk is inherent in investing in, uh, in life. All you can do is manage it and understand it, but you can't get rid of it. You can maybe shift it around. You can mitigate it through different strategies, but you can't get rid of it. And, uh, yeah, so it's not risky. If you know what you're doing, it's sort of a a saying that gets you to take some reckless risks. Right. Um, and it's, it's not good advice. So (laughs) avoid that one. So where can people find out more about you? Go to secfi.com, explore our website. Click on the wealth management tab. You'll see some stuff there. Welcome to schedule intro calls with us. We're, we're happy to talk. We do free intro call, of course, and we even do a free insights call, which is where we sort of surface some initial insights into someone's financial situation to kind of give them a taste of what it's like to work with us and work with an advisor, allow them to vet us and see if it's going to be a good fit or not. So, you know, if you're curious about this, I'd encourage you to go check it out. I love just nerding out over anything investment related. So if you've got questions about how to build a portfolio or what you should be doing, set one of those calls up and I'd be happy to talk to you. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes. So we'll have that there so that as you're scrolling through this episode, you just have to click down below. And thank you so much, John. I know that this- uh, Thank you. Uh, super excited that we had the opportunity to have this conversation for everybody. And thank you so much for listening today. Tech Careers and Money Talk, we're a new podcast, so please listen where you can. 
Apple, Google, Spotify. We would please ask that you leave us a review. We want to understand what you find valuable here and tell somebody else we are having this conversation about career and money. This can be challenging, but now we're here to have the conversation with you. Thank you so much.